Welcome to a Words, Beats, and Life podcast. This episode features the Alternative Winter Break series. What's going on, good people? It is day three. Actually, day, well, day four of the alternative winter break. This is the third year in a row that Words Meets Life has hosted this. And the whole idea of the alternative winter break is to explore the media arts. Um, that's careers in things like writing, blogging, filmmaking, um, etc. And the idea is to bring together people who are doing that work to learn about how they got there. So many young people are interested in career paths that don't necessarily know what's the path? If they don't know an artist or they don't know a creative that's working in that space, they kind of got to figure it out on their own. And so we're trying to help um, so that young people don't need to figure everything out on their own. To that end, I'm super excited tonight to have a conversation with a new friend, um, Tamara Wellens. Tamara is a vaunted, soulful vocalist whose artistry resonates in multiple realms with the vitality of the timeless definition of rhythm and blues. Also, she's passionate, empathetic, Piscean, who understands on multiple levels the healing essence of music. Songs come to her like life in transformative cycles. Her 2021 release album, Months of Sundays, is her fourth and perhaps most personal yet. It follows three critically acclaimed records, um, Life Is in 2008, Songs for Janie in 2012, and Pretty in 2016. I know when I was first reading the bio, I was like, petty, but that, I was projecting. Pretty in 2016, uh, that in the past decade have been, I'm sorry, that in the past decade have seen her perform at renowned venues, including Washington, D.C.'s John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts and Blues Alleys and London's Jazz Cafe. Furthermore, the success of these records has allowed her to share the stage with six-time Grammy-winning saxophonist David Sanborn, plus Grammy-nominated vocalist Jonathan Butler and Gerald Albright. In the realm of health and wellness, Wellens is uh, Wellens is an artist in healthcare. Wow, is an artist is an arts in healthcare expert. Uh, I need better glasses. She was an artist in residence at the Georgetown University uh, Lombardi Comprehensive Cancer Center. Her expertise in this field allowed her to deliver creative health services uh, to patients via the power of song every day. As a creative in this realm, she's been featured in publications uh, and in Johns Hopkins University's Music and Care, Artistry in the, Hospi in the Hospital Environment by Sarah Hoover of the Peabody Institute. You've been doing a lot. I'm really glad you can make the time to join us tonight. Yes, me too. I'm so happy to be <laughs> be with you, Mozzie. This is well, cool. Happy Kwanzaa too. To you as well, to you as well. For those for those looking for Kwanzaa activities, this Friday we're going to be hosting one at 7 o'clock at Bloom Bars featuring Bomani Arma, um, the Watermelon Man, Mr. Read a Book, as he calls himself, the Black Colin Powell. Um, he's doing a Kwanzaa <laughs> celebration at Bloom Bars. It's totally free. 
So Words cool. Meets Life is a sponsor, so we'd encourage you to go. All you got to do is go to Eventbrite and get your tickets. Um, so this is my fourth interview, this this go-round, and I like to start mm-hmm. them all the same way just because I feel like learning learning what people know about their history, yeah. at least from my own experience, helps me understand what they're currently doing, how mm-hmm. they see themselves mm-hmm. in the tapestry of their own family, not just you know global history. So I love to ask my first question um, being... How, who was the oldest ancestor that you are aware of? You don't have to know a ton about them, but just you're aware of their existence. Who's your oldest ancestor? My um, oldest ancestor that I'm aware of is um, Tempe, Tempest Tempe Brown. Um, she was born 1807. I'm sorry, 1805. Our family goes back, we're, I'm like eight generation um, in Virginia. So I think I'm the seventh. Sixth or seventh. Um, so my family has done a wonderful job of keeping the history. Um, I'm from Southampton County, Virginia. And so Ivor is the little town where I grew up. It has one stoplight. Um, if you know people from Ivor, then more than likely, you know, they're a relative or a, a friend of a relative. Um, but yeah, my family, we, we go way back. Um, and I'm really proud of it. You know, my my ancestors were the first black voters in Southampton County, Virginia. And if you know anything about Southampton, you know about Nat Turner. And that's where he had his um, led his um, infamous um, insurrection um, in 1831, which was the year that my great, great, great grandfather um, were, was born, 1830. So. Um, it's a lot of history there. A, a lot of my work, my whole life is really inspired by my family and that history. So I'm happy that you asked that question. And um, I could go on and on about it because honestly, you know, the the music that I've put out and the work that I do is really centered around, um, you know, my family. And I definitely would. I would definitely like to go further because you are, this is my third year doing this. You are the person with the most knowledge of your family tree that I've ever talked to. Really? Um, yes. Which is super inspiring. I wonder, um, do, do you know when your family, like what, what made your family decide that preserving that story of its, of its lineage was important? Is there, is there someone to point back to? Was that a, was that your parents or grandparents that, or even before that? Yeah, I mean, it probably has something to do with um, my, um, so Tempe's daughter, uh, Martha, uh, Mariah, or Maria, she was the um, the only daughter. And so she married um, Jason Holloman and Jason was sold to um, to Richmond or, or we did Carolinas. We don't really know exactly where, but she was left to raise um, her three boys. And, you know, it doesn't say exactly like this is the reason why we kept our history, but I feel like it has something to do with the fact that, you know, she wanted to keep her family together and and possibly even find her husband who had been sold, uh, my my great, great, great grandfather, Jason. So it was Hack and Jim, two of the brothers that were the first voters in Southampton County because they were landowners and they were so young of course, they were um, young boys, so she didn't. She couldn't go and vote because she was a woman. Um, she had to be encouraging them to 
to do these things. Also, they were part of the the first African-American church in Southampton County, which is um, in our little town. It's a church called Gilfield Baptist Church. Um, They were some of the first, they were of, of the founding members there as well. So I think it was like, you know, pride. It was understanding, knowing who's who, like that's something really was, was steeped in our tradition. You know, you have to know who's who, who's mama, <laughs> who's co- who your cousins are really. And so I had a aunt, her name was Aunt um, B. She was our historian. So she kept the history and a lot of our family members. I mean, we have a book called Over Home that um, a couple of our relatives decided to put together in a book form. You know, at first it was Aunt B who just had the oral tradition. Then we wrote it up and each family reunion, we would read it and we would say who we were the daughters of or the sons of. So it was just like a few family members who knew the importance of, of keeping the history. And uh, when Aunt B passed away, my sister became the historian of the family, the one who would always keep keep the story going d- during our family reunions. And my mom was is um, she used to lead the family reunions and things like that. So you know, it was it was a lot of effort put into knowing who we were. That was like something we could stand on, like knowing who you are. If we even if we didn't have a lot, you knew whose child you were. That is that's powerful. It's powerful to yeah. know. I'm I'm glad you're you're able to to share that story to even tie your family legacy back to to early voting and land ownership. Yes. These are powerful yes. ideas that that you were taught as a part of just being a part of your family, which is just powerful. I wonder can can you share a little bit that more recent history with your your parents? Yeah. Who were they? What what if anything did they do for a living? Um, oh, thank you for asking that. I'm, I'm so, I love my, my parents so much. Um, my father and my mom, they have a very interesting story. Um, they grew up around the same time. I bet my dad was born in Newport News, Virginia. Um, and his, his mother were gospel singers and, um, they moved to Ivor when he met my mom, he met my mom and they went to school together, but they grew up as adults after they got married, they worked together at a chemical plant in Hopewell, Virginia. They spent their life, you know, a lot of their life, like really connected with family and um, like big leaders in the community, Um, not necessarily on any type of like political platform or anything like that, but just, you know, leaders, you know, taking in children and um, being a part of the life in that small town. And so they worked there for like 35 years at this chemical plant in Hopewell and um, then retired early. As soon as I graduated from Bowie State University, they were like, all right, we're out. They, they, they retired at like 50 and, um, you know, lived out the rest of their lives, really just, um, you know, still being a part of the community, the church and very much involved in the family um, life. So. You know, they they had a remarkable story. I lost my dad last year. Oh, it's been, I think it was last year. Sometimes time kind of moves in different ways when you lose somebody um, or when there's so much death experience in my family. My family's had a lot of it this year. Um, but yeah, it was last year. Um, and I still feel that he's with me sometimes. Maybe that's why it's like, oh, that's weird to say still. Um, but... He uh, and my mom just very involved in life. 
they they weren't passer buyers. They 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 came up here to Maryland. They still lived in Ivor, but anytime um, I have two other sisters, you know, there were things happening. They were just one hundred percent, you know, involved in things that we had going on, and they had their own lives. Just um a wonderful example of of love as well because they were married for like fifty four years. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. My my condolences uh, for for the loss of your father, but but thank you. My my uh, my gratitude that you still feel his presence and feel comforted. Um, one of the other things I love to ask is is when did creativity start? Uh, because a lot of times, like especially for young people, the things that they create and that they do. Unfortunately, more often than not, are, are either dismissed or, or invalidated. Mm-hmm. And so, I wonder when you think back over your life, what is your earliest memory of doing something creative? Whether that was dance or fashion yeah. or music, what what was your first creative memory? Well, I don't think I've ever been asked that question before. But um, you know, because singing for me, I started very, very young, like like three or four years old. They say I was singing before I was like talking. <laughs> and um and it was it wasn't necessarily a creative thing to do it was just something that i had a voice and it's just something that i did so i never looked at it as like oh this is creativity uh for me but i remember in high school creating these um black history programs at school or at church i would like be introducing folks i had my own research through some um, books that I read about, you know, Black people, I got really interested in the Black presence in the Bible. Because I would go to Sunday school and I'm like, it can't be, this can't be it. Now, Sunday school's book, you only saw, you know, white faces. And I'm like, this this can't be right. Something in my mind said, this can't be right. So I went on a search um, at a very young age and really got into understanding who um, who I was. And outside of my family, knowing that history, but I'm saying, you know, globally, like who, what, what does it mean to be black and why are we not represented? And, and I got really into it. And so I started to create these programs. Um, It was like um, skits and drama and um, songs and poetry and like all of these things. And it kind of stayed, I was probably like 15 or 16 years old when I started doing this um, in church and in community. So I feel like I really exercised my creativity at that point. But I was singing all that, you know, time before. Um, but I felt like this was like a, a, a real, a different step in, um, in, in expressing myself. And, and it was backed with, you know, this understanding of like who, who we are. So was that was that two year old and three year old singing? Was that was that around the house? Was that at church? Where, where was that? It was at church. Um, they put me up. I said I say they because I don't remember ever asking like, oh, mama, I want to sing. You know, it wasn't like this, like this urge to just go and sing somewhere. I think it was something my mom and dad recognized that I had um, a voice and they encouraged me a lot to to use it to sing. Oh, Tammy, you know, sing because he lives. So I go sing that in church. Um, I also had a kindergarten teacher, Ms. Joyce Bowers, who played uh, piano a little bit. And I will all she would always call on me um, to come up and sing in front of the class. I think she was grading papers, you know, like while I was up singing for the class, keeping them occupied. But it worked. 
because I surely had no fear of getting up and singing at any time, you know. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because when I asked you about your earliest creative memory, you let us know about singing, then you jumped all the way to high school. I wonder, you just gave me, a, my, was usually my second question, which is how does, how, how did that play out in school? And so you say, yeah, your, your, your teacher asked you to come up and sing in front of the class, but were there other opportunities for you to use your voice um, to sing or to, or to, to talk about the things that you were concerned about in that school environment before high school? Is there anything in elementary or middle school? Um, yeah, there were some things. I had a fifth grade teacher who used to bring her guitar to school and um, and play. So I was like, I don't know. There was this that was different for um, for our school. Also, I was a part of. You ever heard of um, 4-H? I have. So we 4-H was really big in Southampton. And particularly in my town, we, we I was a part of the club. And, um, of course, people always look at 4-H. It was agriculture, of course. Mm-hmm. That was part of the, you know, a, a part of what that youth development program was about. Um, so I had, you know, we did the vegetable shows and the county fairs, all that stuff. But a part of it also were um, these talent shows that they used to have and competitions. So I was like eight, nine years old, 10. This is all elementary um, age and I was a part of 4-H and I would go and compete in 4-H for the talent show. Um, so there was a woman in my community, Miss Holloman, who she always signed me up to go um, um, compete. I was singing, you know, I sung, I remember singing Jody Watley <laughs> and uh, Tina Marie and in these talent shows for 4-H, they probably way, way above what I should be singing about. Like the topic was totally not appropriate, but um, it was something that I had, I did, I competed, you know, I used my talent outside of school. Uh, well, I was school age, but outside of school um, mm-hmm. and 4-H was like a very big part of my life from elementary school on through high school, really. And and did you end up going to college after high school? I did. I went to, um, I went to Bowie. And what would you major in at Bowie? I majored in elementary education, but you couldn't keep me out of the fine arts department. I was not necessarily encouraged to major in music or voice or anything like that. I didn't even see that as a way for me to, I just knew that I, you know, I, I would sing and that was a part of what I would do, but I, I kind of had this mindset of, um, that wasn't a way that I would be making money or that was not how, what I would do for a living. So I had to choose something like education. (laughs) Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a whole book. (laughs) We've got a little bit of time for a couple of those chapters because I'm I'm curious. First off, you're the fourth guest, Mm -hmm. the fourth HBCU grad. (laughs) This was not intentional. Yeah. Um, And the second person from, well, the, the other person I had from Bowie is actually the director of the, the arts department. Um, yes, T.O. Dros. Yeah. That's, that's my brother. And so what was it about elementary education? It, it just seemed practical? Or was it those teachers that you had had along your own educational journey that were there to be of encouragement to you? What, mm-hmm. what was it about elementary education, you think? Um, I mean, well, I really love, I did like teaching. And I started going in the direction of that. We had this group called, also this group called, um, in addition to 4-H, we had Black Achievers. 
And I remember in Black Achievers in high school, I had to choose a um, like a career path. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm already doing singing a lot, music and like, let me just, let me see, try something else. So I tried out teaching. Um, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I did have a lot of teachers who influenced me. So many, so many teachers influenced me um, throughout my um, my elementary, middle school, high school years. But it was, it, it just never, I didn't have a frame of reference for what a career in music would be like outside of being like a church organist. So it wasn't something that I could like, I didn't see that as a, as a path, as something that I could major in, in school. Makes total sense. It's yeah. part of the reason why we're doing this series is for people to yeah. understand there's many paths to similar yeah. destinations. Yeah. So at what point, at what point did that belief and what was possible shift? Like what, what were the, the circumstances under which you decided that a career in the arts mm-hmm. would actually be viable and be able to provide for you and your family? Um, it was actually when I came to this area, to the to the Washington, D.C., Maryland, when I went to Bowie um, and I saw people walking around with their instruments saying that they had a gig after school or like, I'm like, a gig? You know, like, what's that? <laughs> um, it really was when I came to this area and I, you know, witnessed the bands and people out performing. I'm like, oh, okay, this is possible. Or I went to some studios and I saw these studios, people owning their own studios and working out of engineering and producing. I had I had only seen like a, a little bit of that in um, like Virginia Beach, Norfolk area, even though, you know, that's where... Um, Teddy Riley, um, Missy, um, Pharrell, a whole bunch of for Neptunes, um, you know, a whole bunch of, uh, uh, there's, there's a lot of talent there, but I didn't see it for myself, um, until I came to Bowie and, um, I got involved with the jazz band. Like I said, I was doing everything in fine and performing arts. And, um, some of my professors were part, part of like bands and things that went out to do shows you know, bands that performed out. Um, so I, I caught wind of that and I was like, oh, that's what I want to do. <laughs> so, so how did that work? Did you, did you change majors or did you just get involved in the arts community while you maintained your education degree? How, how so did that I, work? I stayed in elementary education and I just was very involved in fine and performing arts. Um, and I did things that where I could use my, my talent. Um, I was actually Miss Bowie State 99. Um, and my talent was singing. And, you know, I, I did things, everything was like related to music within my, um, within my work. Even as a teacher, you know, I came out and I think arts integration had just started to kind of get, you know, some you know, be, be talked about in public schools. So I was at Mount Rainier Elementary School and we were one of the first schools that had like this arts integration program. I was I was like, yes, this this is me. This is what I need to do. So I always kept music, you know, and, and the arts right there, right beside whatever, you know, other profession that I was doing. So um, for, at one time I thought that I couldn't merge the two, but when 
like I said, when arts and arts and education and arts integration became like a buzzword and people were getting, you know, funding was happening for it. I really knew then I was like, okay, I don't have to um, separate these things. I can, I can merge my interest in, in it all. Like, and that's what I've done, honestly, up until this point. So when did you graduate from Bowie? Um, 98, 99. <laughs> 99. So does yeah. that mean, so between 99 and 2008, are you, you're, you're, you're a classroom educator? Um, yeah. And you're working in yeah. an elementary school doing arts integration. Yeah. And, and do, do things like the, the, the artist residencies come later, but so, yeah. So what's your experience during that 99 to 2008 in a classroom space? knowing that you're incorporating creativity. What's, right. how, is that, how is that preparing you for this life that you're now living? One, it prepared me just in a, in a real life way. Um, I was able to purchase a home and have somewhere to stay. Like that, in a real life way, I had sustainable income. Uh, whereas I don't know if that would have been the case if I had um, put all of my pursuits in music. I'm not sure. And I use that time, you know, when I had my summers off, guess what I did during my summer breaks? What? I went to um, Omega School for the Recording Arts and Science. And I start, I studied um, production and music business. And I had my, you know, I was raising a family by that time. I had my son very young. Um, yeah, I was 24, still teaching. And I take him, take him in the stroller with me to my class, take him to the studio. I'm like, we in this, you know? Um, so in a, in a real life way, it afforded me to be able to do some other things. So my summer breaks as a teacher, I used that, recorded, did music. So 2008 was my first full length project, but even before then I was doing mixtapes. I was working with, um, with MCs, um, producers. Uh, I was singing on the hook. Whatever I could do, you know, I was doing it when it came to music and creativity. It was really, uh, um, it was a beautiful time. Um, and looking back, it might have felt a little, like a little struggle between like, oh, I want to do music, but I'm teaching. And it was a little push and pull there. But looking back, it was, it was a really, um, I feel good about how I use my time you know, while I was, while I was teaching. You know, because, because I know a little bit about your, your, your knowledge of your family history. I wonder how big a role knowing your, your own family legacy of, of people who um, were responsible adults, who were someone's in the community, who, t- who had regular jobs, it made a difference. Yeah. How much that played a role in you thinking that even though teaching wasn't necessarily your passion, it would be something you're good at and they could provide the resources you need. But at the same time, you could pursue a passion and and let that passion grow mm-hmm. to a point where it could become your actual career. Like how much of how much do you think like knowing who your family is impacted yeah. the way you thought about what could be possible? Well, you know, my my grandmothers had a singing group. They were the Pritchett Gospel Sisters of um, Newport News. Um, I mean, the the Pritchett Sisters, it was a gospel music group um, of Newport News. They, and I, I didn't know my grandmother, but I live right beside my aunt. Her name is Aunt, uh, her, her name is Corrine. And um, she played the organ. She, um, 
Um, she's saying alto, you know, I honestly don't know what her other profession <laughs> was. I don't know what else she was doing. Cause by the time I got to know her, she had, you know, she had aged some, but that was all I knew about her is that she could sing. But my grandmother, I knew that she was um, a hairdresser or a hairstylist as they say now, but back then, you know, she, she did hair. <laughs> she sold, she was the candy lady and, um, you know, sold candy and moon pies. So she was kind of an entrepreneur in her own right um, while raising my dad and, you know, being involved as a singer um, in the community. So I don't know, maybe it was a little bit there. I know one thing um, I always had, I did have a lot of encouragement to continue singing, um, you know, just from the community. And every time I would go home, you know, I'm singing for everybody's funeral. I'm singing for the wedding. I'm singing at the family reunion. I'm like the singer. So it wasn't anything that I could um, let rest for sure. So I, I don't I don't know. You know, maybe I, it's just something that um, would not ever. Yeah, just I couldn't let rest. That's the only way I could say it, um, you know, coming up into this this education space. I mean, it's a beautiful story, especially for the person that has a family that yeah. is not like your family, that isn't sure right. that they can make a career at it and want them to do the practical thing. But you were an example of a person that did the practical thing, but at the same time, didn't give up your passion and right. let your passion overtake your responsibility till that passion could become your responsibility. Yeah. So it's just a different road. It's, it's, it's beautiful. And you're the first person I've talked to who has that story, so I'm so glad that you're here yeah. to share it. So what changes in 2008 that lets you be able to put out this first album? Um, or just what happens? Maybe it's not a change. Yeah, what happens? Um, I, I also, I had this, because of that early education um, in music business, because I was like, okay, if I'm going to do this, because my plan was to leave the classroom. Eventually, I was like, I'm gonna leave the classroom, but I felt like I needed to have something and more understanding of what to do in a music career in order to leave the classroom. So that's why I went to Omega School and all that stuff and tried to learn, you know, and, and get connected. Um, what I realized is this is something I wanted to make sure I said tonight because I, I want I want young folks to hear this. It was the relationships that I built along the way, whether it was in school, in college, or through Omega, through anything that I did, it was the relationships that really gave me like more opportunities to record, to perform, and to be out here in the music world like I am. And so 2008, by that time, I had had my third child, and it seemed like Every child that I had just gave me more ambition <laughs> to, <laughs> to make music. It was like, oh, I'm going to, I got to do this. It was almost, it was like a little, little challenge to me um, that I wasn't going to let anything, um, any circumstance um, get in the way of me making. Um, it, it really enhanced my, my creativity because I, like I'm, 
um, I'm inspired a lot by my family, the history, but also the present things that I was going through. So the songs that I wrote in 2008 and put out, the album is called Life Is. So I was talking about being a mother. I was talking about seeing my daughter's face before she was born. I was writing house music about, you know, falling in love, understanding what love wasn't. <laughs> so it was like real life stuff happening. Um, life is. And that that kind of, um, I feel like I, I birthed that project or a lot of projects, you know, along with my children. I had a lot of people around me. Um, at the time I was married, it, it, it really helps to have a partner who understands that um, music is also a part of what, you know, you want to bring to this world. So I can't say that I would be able to um, have had, I would have, would not have had the career that I've had without my, um, my family, my relationship, my partnerships. So, I mean, that's, that's what I can say on that. You know, I wonder, because one of the things I've, we've had some people post in the chats, like questions about how to help young people get access to some of the places that you, you describe yourself as having had access to in terms of community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wonder two things. One, are there, were there any mentors at Bowie State? Cause you talked about teachers who were working musicians who you would see and they'd go out to gig and sometimes you might gig with them, but were yeah. there people in your college years that were mentors um, in, well, in your college years and post-college as you're yeah. becoming a part of the scene who, and what role did those mentors play? There was a professor, Dr. Gilbert Pryor. Then there was Dr. Knight and uh, Miss Barbara Smith. These people were, I don't know if I can say that they were necessarily like mentors in the way that, you know, they were tracking my, you know, my, my career moves at that point, but they were most certainly like my um, my like champions. You know, they were people who encouraged me or told me, you know, what I what I'm capable of doing when I didn't necessarily believe it in myself. I always had people around me to like I I needed this boost in self esteem and in confidence about my voice um, and and my just my my presence in the world whether, you know, it was through education or music, like I needed a lot of um, support in that way. Uh, And it's not like I didn't grow up, you know, having that support. It's just, I don't know, maybe just something the way I'm, I'm made (laughs) Um, that, that that was a very important piece in my life. um, Having people around me to say, you can do something. So we talked about the, the release of your debut album in 2008, Life Is. And in 2012, you released your second album, Songs mm-hmm. for Janie. Can we talk a little yeah. bit about that album? Yes. Um, that's one of my favorite, most, most favorite albums. Um, because of what I was going through at the time and what I, the inspiration for it. So um, I read this book, uh, Their Eyes Are Watching God. Actually, it's. Yep, it's behind you. Yep. <laughs> Zerone Hurston. I, you know, I, I first read about her from my um, high school teacher, Miss H- Miss Wyatt um, in Southampton. I just I was in a forensics class, so I just had to like read an excerpt of it and memorize it and um recite it. And um I, I love the dialect 
because, you know, the folks spoke in this book, like the folks from my town. I was like, oh my God, I understand every word. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I just ate it up. Um, but in high school, I read it again at, I mean, um, in, in college, I read it at Bowie. And then as an adult, um, it did mean something different for me because um, I found myself um, searching for myself, you know, mm-hmm. like, and and um, I had a wonderful um, partner who was working with me on helping to create the concept for that, for this album and for music that I had already written these songs. I was going through a, um, a relationship breakup, uh, a marriage a divorce. <laughs> so it was just, it wasn't just any relationship. It was actually a divorce and it was a really tough time for me. And I poured myself into um, this work. So it became a healing um, space for me to create songs for Janie. And I kind of had, had, I had that character to live out some of my, um, my, or, or to express, you know, some of my deepest feelings about, you know, things I was going through as a, um, as a woman. So songs for Janie is like so close to me. Um, so, so much so that I still produce, I hope we do a show of that. Um, I'd have to create a theatrical concert um, based off of that album. And so I perform it, you know, from year to year. I didn't last year in the, I think the last year was 2019 when I did um, a live theatrical performance. So it's something that will live for a long time because I, I take it to the stage as a theatrical show. Um, I've had other people to take the show and perform it as well. Um, some students at Gallaudet. So it's something that I created that I feel like can just, it's, it's my dream to have other people sing my music or, you know, um, perform something that I've created. Um, Songs for Janie. Yeah, that's, it's, it's a gift. (laughs) And correct me if I'm wrong, was the first bit of theater the 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 black history program you talked about doing in high school? Mm-hmm. So you've been you've been basically dibbling and dabbling in theater yes. since you were a child. Yeah. Is is Janie the um or, or songs for Janie is, is that is that the only theatrical production or are there others that you've put up over over time? The last album that I did pretty I did a theatrical concert of that album as well but I only did it once I keep I'm sorry I keep um looking at something in this screen here <laughs> my locks are popping out you know here and there but um yeah I did I did a theatrical concert of pretty as well I only did it um for t- a two night run um oh and at, at Bowie as well I was all in the play production Space. I starred in this um, show called um, this theatrical um, musical called Platinum. Um, that was that was created by um, the now um, he's now now deceased, um, Mr. Elliot Moffat. But he was very instrumental in my life too. He gave me a part, a, a, like a, a major role in this in this play that he created. Um, all bla- based on music of the 1950s and 60s. And I was like, really? Me? You know, like I'm not even a theater major, but I could sing and I love theater. So it, it was opportunities like that that just gave me so much. Um, I didn't have to major in it in order to be involved in it. And and people like 
you know, Professor Moffitt, when they see something in you and people and, you know, believe it, believe it. What, what yeah. was it about Songs for Jane and Pretty that made you decide to do theatrical performances of the albums? Um, I just didn't want to perform the songs. Like, I felt like it needed um, to be brought to life in a different way. And I think that um, theater is one of those mediums that can really um, help people understand what it is you're saying. Hmm. Me- the message, it, it gets in, I mean, it, the message is there, you know, for the audience, but also I don't like to be um, bored with my own work. Like, so it was a challenge as well. It's like, I wanted to be excited about what I was putting out there. So I want to do something that was different and exciting for me. So, I mean, that's, that's a big piece of my creativity. Like I gotta, I gotta love it and be in it and be excited about it. So that, that did that for me. That's what's up. Um, yeah. So as we, so that's, so the last date I gave you was um, 2016. So what happens after 2016 in terms of your own creative efforts um, and at what point do you actually um, get affiliated with the DC chapter of the Recording Academy? Okay, I want to answer that question, but uh, Mozzie, I see somebody in the chat. Oh, you know Norma? Yes, I do. And I'm so glad that she said something because she is actually uh, a woman who has been a mentor in my life. I met her my uh, first year teaching at Mount Rainier Elementary School. And we've been friends ever since. Um, She's in Seattle, Washington now. So hello, Norma. So good that you're here. (laughs) She has been very instrumental in in my life. So I'm like thrilled that she's she's in the chat right now. Um, So now I can't remember what the question was because I got all sidetracked seeing Norma. (laughs) (laughs) It's all good. I was just asking, so I know that, because I read I read enough of the bio well enough to say that part of what you started doing was um, being an artist in residence, doing mm-hmm. art therapy. So I'm, I'm just yeah. kind of asking, what happens after 2016? And then at what point do you become affiliated with the Recording Academy chapter in Washington, D.C. and become its president? Okay, so as soon as um, I got the, put, put out my album, 2008, back up. Before that, I went to this studio um, and I heard it was a board member from the Recording Academy. I was like, Recording Academy, DC chapter, like what? What is this? Um, and, and you know, I was just an, uh, a a young artist recording in the studio, listening. There's a bunch of dudes in the booth, engineers and producers. I really didn't feel like like I could be a part of that, honestly. Um, but fast forward after I came out with um, my project and I had credits, you know, I'm I'm always going to find out like how I can be a part of some type of organized effort or community, something that will help me um, get further, b- build more relationships, being a network with people. That's kind of like one of my philosophies in, in life is just to um, be a part of network. And um So I realized I needed, you know, after I had the credits, I was able to be a part of the Academy. So I think I joined, it's been um, like shortly after that Life Is came out, I became just a member, Um, not just a member, but I was a member. And later on, I 
kind of went back and forth between having my membership lapse, come back. You know, I was involved, but not super involved. Again, I have to say this. There were times where I felt like that was as far as I could go in this organ, in that organization. Like just being a member was that, that was it. Um, but something, I don't, I'm not sure what <laughs> it was, but, um, I think it was, it was me understanding, um, like who I was around. Um, I saw people that I knew who were board members. So I said, you know what? I can do this. So I threw in my hat, I threw my hat in the ringer to become a board member. Um, I became a candidate. I was voted in. And I, I really feel like I um I learned a lot about who maybe people see me as a lead, you know, people seeing me as a leader was a thing. Um, because, you know, of course the the membership has to vote on um the board members, and then the board votes on the um elected leaders. And long story short, you know, I served on the board for three years and then I served as an elected leader for three years. And now I'm president of the Recording Academy DC chapter. So how did I get there? Um, Creating music and talking to people and building on those relationships with people that I met. I saw a path for myself. And I'm telling you, I, I love it because... I like being a part of organizations um, and I feel like I have a lot of community there. I like, it's not a lot of places I can go to and feel like I'm in community with other like-minded folks who are recording music, you know, and putting it out, trying to do something more with their music, being super creative. It's not a lot of places that I felt like I could go to do that. And the Recording Academy was one of those places. How important is it, do you you think, for people to not just record, but to also do, like you talked about the credits, like doing, knowing mm-hmm. what the business of music mm-hmm. is to be able to fully realize the value of what it is that they're doing. How important is that for a young creative to, to kind of do the right steps? Yeah. It's very important. I mean, if you, this is something that comes from your mind it is your creativity. Like it's almost like, um, protect it's just, it's protecting it. Um, not to mention monetizing and, and being able to, um, have some financial gain off of what you've put in, you know, you invest in yourself when you record. So why not get some return on your investment? And, not just in the, I mean, when you perform, I don't even know if people understand this, but you record a song, you put it out for people to hear. When you go and perform that song, you can get performance royalties just off of the performance of it. So you just submit that to your performing rights organization and they give you royalty off of the song that your own song that you performed. Um, and there's so many avenues to collect as a musician. And I don't think that we know enough about that. You know, we talk about multiple streams of income as a way to build wealth and all of that, where I feel like music and I'm still in it and finding out these multiple streams. But there are multiple streams when it comes to being an artist and a music maker like 
it is there. So you might as well, you need to know about it um, and protect, protect what you've created. It's like property. It is. It is intellectual property. Yeah. (laughs) It's like real estate. So do you feel like younger artists are more aware or less aware of kind of the road forward in a, in a career in, in music um, is the road clearer for young people today than it was for you when you were contemplating it as a younger person? Um, it could be clearer if you even know to look in that direction. Um, gosh, all the information that's out here now, like YouTube has is a lifesaver for that type of information. So it's there for people to get and understand. Um, but I'm not sure if, uh, if they know to even look in the direction for it yet. We've yeah. got a question. We've got a question from a viewer. Okay. As an artist, what is the greatest challenge you've come through? That was a question from Kennard Cherry. Yes, I know him very well. <laughs> That's my husband. <laughs> the greatest challenge, I would say, is um, thinking that I had to do something more in order to have um, a connection or something like um, just to be straight up. I thought, oh, well, I'm not Grammy nominated. So why should I be, wh- who who will vote for me as um, vice president or president? Like I'm not Grammy nominated. You know, like these things, you, I'm, I'm thinking I had to have certain things in order to be a certain place. Like I started getting my master's, uh, working on my master's degree in um, health promotion. And then I wanted to get a master's in arts and medicine because I thought, oh, well, I probably will need this if I want to do more in this arts and health space, which we haven't talked about at all. But if I want to do more in this arts and health space, I probably need to get a degree to do that. Um, so my challenge has been, or things that I've, what I've overcome is understanding that I don't always have to go and get a degree in something in order to achieve, or I don't need the award in order to get the reward or the, the, the place that I wanted to be in, um, or to take on or to do some type of project or to work with the largest mixing engineer um, in the country, I don't have to be a part of this major label, this true story. (laughs) I didn't have to be a part of a a major label or sell my soul to go and work with this wonderful mixing engineer that has mixed, you know, Michael Jackson to Whitney Houston. You know, it was just things like that. That I feel like that's the piece that I've had to that that has been the challenge, understanding that. The challenge and the reward, actually. Well, let's hard pivot to to the the piece around the integration of, of music and health. I mentioned yeah. it in, in reading your bio. Let's let's talk a little bit more about it. I actually have spent the last month talking mm. about wellness on WPFW 89.3 on a show I host. Um, called Something to Say. And all of the people I've brought in have been art therapists talking about the role that art can play as a therapeutic practice. And so I'd love to learn more about the work you've done around art therapy. Uh, yeah. Yes, you got another comment from Elise. Elise Perry. You know yes. You belong in every room. Yeah, Elise, wonderful person. Thank you, Elise. She She's the president um, prior to me. She was the first Black female 
president of the Recording Academy, Academy for uh, DC Chapter as well. <laughs> so um, I would say that was that was the other piece, Mozzie. I working um, so while I was doing um, um, songs for Janie, I was working with a dancer who actually worked in hospital spaces, and I was really interested in what she was doing. I sound like it could be another. Um, thing that I could add to my list of um, what they call it, mixed wage earners now, like <laughs> one of my gigs. I was like, oh, okay, let me, I can do it at the hospital. Let me go sing there, you know, um, to add to my income. Um, and this, of course, after I left the classroom, I started doing a lot of different things to make up for my income. And so the hospital was one of those places. And so I started working in there. I loved it fell in love with it because I had an opportunity to sing the songs I grew up singing and I didn't have any accompaniment. It was acapella, just like I did when I was a little girl. And I was singing songs that people could relate to. They were hymns, they were jazz standards. Like I just fell in love with, and and I also, and I did that for eight years. Um, It wasn't every day, eight years. It was um, once a week. Sometimes it would be, you know, um, twice, twice a week. You know, it was varied in my schedule. Um, However, I thought that, okay, in order for me to get further in this career as an arts and um, artist in residence, you know, let me, I had to go to school. So I mentioned that a little bit, but I I realized, um, but my experience gave me everything that I needed my experience in working in the hospital space. Also, I did not go to school to be a therapist, a music therapist or art therapist, because that wasn't what I was, that's not what I was doing. I was simply being a singer and artist in a healthcare environment, which is very different from the work of art therapy, Mm -hmm. but it was very similar. Um, but another, this is another place I want folks, young folks to know, you know, if it's something that you do and you have um, the experience of it can sometimes be, um, and what you learn from that experience can be what you need to get you to the next step and, you know, whatever you're trying to achieve. So there came an opportunity for me to, um, for there was another hospital space, the Nova Shark Cancer Institute, they were, they were opening up a um an artist in uh, a cancer center. Um, that was my special area singing in the cancer space. Um, and this organization um, that's in DC called Smith Center for the Healing in the Arts, they needed a program manager. They needed someone to um, manage the program, the artists to, that understood what it was to be an art artist in a healthcare environment. Cause it's very nuanced. It's not like, another gig and there's some interpersonal skills that you need to have when you're working with people who are facing illnesses. So I applied for that job and I got it. And, and, you know, I've been working with them for the last four years and able to bring in other artists, other musicians, train them about, you know, with being in that space and, and put them to work. So it's been, it's been a real sweet spot for me. I wonder, you know, the idea of, of going into a space to perform for folks that are working on wellness, I wonder, 
Um, what do you feel like you took from that experience? I, I think I understand what you gave, but what do you feel like you you got out of that out of that giving? Um, and, and somebody else said this better. Um, did you feel like your songs helped heal people or comfort them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it it's very much a reciprocating job. You know, I, I'm I'm walking into a space. And I needed to really be well myself, um, like clear, clear my, my mind, open, be open enough so that I can like be there for people. But I really ended up, especially at Georgetown, because I was, it was more bedside and I would see this sometimes see the same people from uh, week to week. I got poured into a lot, meaning I got fed <laughs> Um, spiritually and emotionally a lot by being in those spaces. You know, I, I would see people and not their illness. Um, I would see, hear like how strong and resilient people were, even though they were like, they were laid in the space, almost unable to move some people or, you know, I did palliative care. So a lot of people were, you know, you know, facing, really facing death, but they were so, um, had so much to give to me and I'm there to give them a service, but they, they were, you know, it was, it was very emotional and spiritual time, um, being in the space with, with people who were facing like illnesses and things and, and to be with their families as well. You know, Tamara, I gotta, I gotta say, I feel, I feel honored to, to be in a city with a national treasure such as yourself. Thank you oh, so much for you, spending, Monty. for spending this last hour. I feel like I need another hour. <laughs> to, that to, time to, went by really fast. <laughs> it's because you got a really rich story. I, I feel like if I was, if I was your manager, I would demand no panels for you ever. You gotta be the <laughs> only person there to talk. <laughs> Uh, do you want to share any Thank info you. about the the the, the chapter uh, for folks that might be interested? Yes, I do. I'd like to um, let you know that you know we have a the Recording Academy um, has um, chapters all over this country, and we have a really robust chapter in Washington D.C. And we'd love to um, invite people to be members. If you're a recording artist, if you've been putting music out there, um, check out. Um, I think you can go to recordingacademy.com or grammys.com and scroll all the way down to where it says membership and then DC chapter. And you can contact us. My name is Tamara Wellens. Um, our executive director is Sharon Ingram. And um, we love, you know, being in a community with other music creators, producers, engineers, music professionals, managers, venue owners, you know, there's two types. Of, there are three types of membership. There's the Grammy U. This is for your group, um, Mozzie. Words, Beats, and Life. You know, the youth who are out there. There's the Grammy U, where you can get mentoring through um, with another with another professional. Who's a then you have the voting membership. Then you have your professional members. Um, so I want to invite you all to you know check it out. Contact me. My website is tamarawellensmusic.com. Um, if you really want to get in touch with me, you can email me at info at herdreamsproductions.com. Um, I'm just putting it out there for you. So I, I'm so honored to be 
speaking to you, Mozzie. I love words, beats, and life. And um, you know, I'm I'm happy that you have this platform where you just just killing it. <laughs> Definitely appreciate you making making the time, and we look forward yeah. to boosting it, sharing it with our students when they get back from winter break, and. Yeah doing our own outreach to learn more about what's happening with the Recording Academy chapter here in Washington, D.C. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tamara. Thank you, Mozzie. All right, everybody. That's day four. We have one more day to go, and uh, hopefully you join us tomorrow. Till then, maybe learn a little bit about the Academy, the program that we run. This podcast was produced by Executive Director Mazi Mutafa. Past episodes can be streamed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Mixcloud. Words, Beats, and Life podcasts are produced through funding from partner grants and in-kind donations from people like you. Visit wblinc.org slash donate to make a contribution.